0: If you got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Is where we're going to be this morning. Um, Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 21 to 34. This is where we left off last November in our series through the gospel of Mark. With a little break for Advent and then for a series on our core values at the beginning of the year. But now we're returning back to Mark's gospel and Mark chapter 4. We left off. Uh, in the thick of Jesus' teaching through some parables, and that's where we're going to pick back up today. So in Mark chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 21, and we'll read down through verse 34 together. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me, so you can follow along. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Then, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it to the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what shall we, can we compare the kingdom of God, and what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Back in 2006, my wife and I had the opportunity to travel uh, with a mission team to Russia, to the interior regions of Russia, uh, and serve there. I helped lead a soccer camp. I had no business leading a soccer camp because I never played soccer in my life. Um, But I was there to look like a fool on the soccer field and then tell them about Jesus, okay? Make them feel really good about their soccer skills. Um, But And then Karen uh, had an opportunity to to be in another area of Russia. And she uh, worked with uh, some women's ministries and then also went into some of the clinics and physicians offices as an RN. Uh, So on our way back from that trip, though, um, our flight from Frankfurt, Germany, back to Dallas, Texas, was overbooked. And so um, I was not in charge of the trip. And so I very quickly offered my seat to whoever would like it. We didn't have any kids at the time to get back home to. And so they were offering up travel vouchers and cash. And we're like, man, just keep stacking it on, you know. And so they were going to put us up in Frankfurt for the night and fly us home the next day. And so we took their... Took the, took the deal behind door number one. And so we stayed in Frankfurt, Germany for a night and uh, went out and round, just kind of toured the city a little bit along the Rhine River, walked by some of the old massive cathedrals that are there in Germany. It's actually, it's kind of a sad state of affairs because most of those churches now are just like museums. They've been hollowed out. But one of the things about those old cathedrals and the architecture that they were constructed with is that all of them had incredible, vivid, stained glass windows that were set into their casings. Now, the interesting thing about stained glass windows is whenever you observe them from the outside, they look dull and dingy. It doesn't look very remarkable at all. In fact, it look kind of boring and ugly. But whenever you walk inside of those cathedrals and, and, and you begin to see the light come through from outside to in, as you're on the inside now, all of a sudden, those dull, dingy, dirty, boring windows become beautiful, radiant pieces of art as you see the colors reflected and refracted through all of those cuts and facets in the glass. All of the colors come alive as they shower the floor and the walls and the ceilings around you. It is, a, it is an awe-inspiring type moment to walk into one of the old cathedrals and have your life lit up by the stained glass windows. Listen, when it comes to Jesus' parables, they are like stained glass windows. That's how, That's what they're like. See, for those on the outside, those who haven't yet met Jesus, they're not a part of God's kingdom, they've never been converted, they've never been born again, the parables appear to be quite dull, quite lifeless, and quite boring. But for those who've met Jesus and they've been brought inside, all of a sudden when they come to the parables now, those parables are radiant, they are bright, they are vivid, and they are like a piece of stunning art. So as we come to the parables once again today, we come to the parables because, listen, Jesus, when He teaches in parables, Jesus didn't invent the parables, okay? But He preferred to teach in parables. In fact, we get to the end of the text we just read this morning. It says He taught them in parables. In fact, He didn't teach them anything without a parable, okay? So He's always using parables. He preferred to use them. And listen, as the most brilliant teacher ever lived, Jesus perfected the parables, There's no one who tells parables better than Jesus, right? He's no one who brings these common, ordinary metaphors to life with vibrancy and vividness like Jesus did. Now most of Jesus' parables related to the nature of God's kingdom. And that's what we find here as well in Mark chapter 4. There's three parables in the text that we read this morning. And we're going to look at each one of them. And for those of you who may be on the outside and never cross the line of faith, these may seem dull and lifeless to you. But listen, for those of you who are on the inside, whom God has saved and is sanctifying, My hope is that God, by His Holy Spirit, would make them shine vibrantly in your life today. So the first parable that we come to in the text is in verses 21 through 25. And there's there's something that this parable teaches us. Okay, And here's what this parable teaches us. That Jesus illumines the kingdom. Jesus illumines the kingdom. Listen. Most of us realize this if we've been alive any amount of time is that you cannot see anything without light. Okay? We're dependent upon light for our vision. And although you cannot see anything without light, you can't see light. Okay? Listen, the only way that you can see light is by looking at its at its source, its 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 point of source or its point of of its origin or its termination. Okay, where it's coming from or where it's focused to. For instance, if you go outside, you look up into the heavens and you see this big burning ball of gas in the sky called the sun. It's the source or the point of origin for the light. Or if you take a magnifying glass, okay, and you got a, like a beetle laying on its back on the sidewalk. You know what I'm talking about? Take the magnifying glass and put it in the sun, and it focuses all of that light, and you put it over the beetle. Long, you know where this is going. But I don't have to finish it for you, right? So it starts smoking a little bit, okay? But it focuses all that light and the heat. It gets hot, okay? And so the only way that you can see light is at its source, its point of origin, or its focal point, its point of termination, and so listen, while we cannot see light, we cannot see anything apart from light. And listen, whenever you think about the source of light, the same is true physically, spiritually as it is physically. When you think about the source of light in, in spiritually, listen, there is a source, there is a, a radiant point of light, its source, its point of origin And it is what Paul calls in 1 Timothy chapter 6 the immortal and invisible God who has always, does now, and will always exist in unapproachable light. So the source of the radiant point, the source of origin is God. And listen, church, whenever God put the magnifying glass over himself in human history, you know where the focal point shines on? Jesus Christ. So, the radiant point is God in all of His splendor, beauty, and majesty from all of eternity. The focal point is Jesus in human history as all of God's revelation comes to center upon Him. And so it's only by Him, through Him, in Him that we're able to see the radiant colors of these parables stand forth for us from their pages. Look at what, the, what, what Jesus says and Mark records here for us in verse 21. He said to them, "...is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear." And He said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given from from the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. Listen, if you're going to understand anything about the parables, you must see them awash in the light of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the point of verses 21 to 25. Let Let me show you why I say that. Listen, in Mark, right... Um, our English translations oftentimes say, is a lamp brought? Okay, now we're going to do a little English here this morning, a little English grammar, okay? Some of you are like, I know, I've been around long enough. You get off on these geeky little tangents about grammar. But listen, there's, this, is a, this is a pretty important point. So track with me, all right? Listen, in English, the subject of a verb does what? The action, doesn't it, right? It is the one who... Acts upon something. The object of a verb is what is acted upon. Okay? Subject does the action of the verb. Object is what is acted upon by the subject. Okay? Most of our English translations translate this uh, phrase at the beginning of of verse 21. Right? Does the lamp come? Or is the lamp brought? Or or, or translate, is the lamp brought? In other words, the lamp is the object. Someone else is the subject bringing the lamp. But actually, the way that Mark in the Greek words this, the way that he captures this thought is is this way, is that the lamp is not the object of the verb that's being brought, but it's the subject of the verb that's coming. So rather than translating it, is the lamp brought, a better translation would be, does the lamp come? First piece of evidence. Second piece of evidence. in the Old Testament, the idea of a lamp is frequently used as a metaphor for a number of things, for the Torah, for God himself, but also for the Davidic Messiah. See, in Psalm 1,19105, it says, "Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path." God's word illumines the path. He illumines our lives. Or in Second Samuel chapter 22, verses 29, David's song on the day that God delivers him from the hand of his enemies, and particularly from Saul. Listen to what David says about God himself. Second Samuel 22:29, "For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness." But in Second Kings chapter eight, Second Kings chapter eight in verses 16 to 19. We read about some of the sequences of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, who, by the way, were not stand up dudes, most of them, okay? They led Israel to disobey God, rebel against God, worship idols of the nations. And listen to what God says in 2 Kings 8, beginning in verse 16. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and as, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, Verse 19, "Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since He promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever." What did, David, what did God promise to David whenever He makes a covenant with him? That one of your sons shall be on the throne for how long? Forever. And the way that the author of, of 2 Kings words it here is that he said he made a promise to David that he would give David a lamp. He would give Dave, David and his sons a lamp to, to forever. And his sons Forever. Okay, in Psalm 132, 17, we see again a reference to this anointed one who would come. There, there I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So over and over again in the Old Testament, the, word, the idea of a lamp is, yes, the Torah, yes, God Himself, but specifically as it centers down oftentimes into the Davidic Messiah, the anointed one who would come. In addition, third piece of evidence, if two weren't enough for you, Not usually enough for me, so I'll give you three. Maybe I'll give you four. How about that? Three, third. In addition, Mark refers to the lamp. The lamp. He uses the definite article rather than the indefinite article. Okay? Once again, English grammar, the word a is an indefinite article meaning just any old lamp. The word the specifies a particular lamp that is coming in. In addition, this lamp is placed on a stand rather than under the bowl or a bed. It signifies that this lamp is lifted up or exalted in the house to give light to all who are in it. It's not contained by anything or subordinated or under anything. It rules supreme over all all things, listen. All of this evidence points to the fact that the Messiah, Jesus Himself, is the lamp of God, the one in whom is divine light, the one through whom comes divine revelation. And if you put together what Mark is saying about Jesus as the lamp of God in the rest of twenty-two to twenty-five, you see that God intends to illumine and reveal the truth of His kingdom through Jesus, the King. And Jesus says what about these parables? Pay attention to what you hear. I've come to reveal it, so pay attention. In other words, and listen, one of the other commentators I read, he said, listen, these parables beg not only to be understood intellectually, but to be lived, to be embraced and embodied. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says the more that you embrace, you give attention to, you embrace and embody what the, the truths this is communicating, the more full and dynamic they will become in your life, right? The more vibrant they will become in your life. But whenever, the, 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 but, but he says, what, the one who has something's gonna be taken away from him, right? The measure that you use be measured to you. but whatever, Whoever has more will be given. Whoever does, has some, whatever they have is going to be taken away. What is all that about? In other words, the more you embrace and embody the brilliance and the truth of these parables that Jesus teaches, the more full, dynamic, and vibrant they become in your life. And the more that you push them back, the more dull and lifeless they will become. So Jesus illumines the kingdom. What is the kingdom like? Now, yeah, I've got a whole page of notes I'm gonna skip here. You can get it somewhere some other time. How about that? Okay, so what is the kingdom like? Two other parables that Jesus tells here in the text. So I want to get to this stuff. Okay, and the first one is this. First one is this. When you look at God's kingdom, you know, Jesus says in John 18, My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it can't be compared to things in this world, it can't be compared to kingdoms in this world. It's not like the great empires of human history. It's not contained by one, any one geography or political entity. It's not a part of a nation or a state. In fact, it encompasses all peoples from all nations. So what is his kingdom like? Jesus says, first of all, God's kingdom is inclusive. It is inclusive. Listen, in verses 30 through 32, Jesus tells a parable about a mustard seed. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed. If you hold it in your hands, it's like a little speck of dirt, okay? Before it gets crushed up and bottled into a French's jar or a Grey Poupon jar, right? Whatever whatever kind of mustard is going to become, it's a little speck of dirt. And he says the smallest of the garden plants, smallest of the garden seeds, but when it's planted in the ground, he says eventually it becomes the largest of all the garden plants. In fact, the mustard seed or tree in, the, in, 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 in Jesus' day and time in the ancient Near East would have grown to about 12 feet in height, towering above all the other crops, all the other garden plants of His day. And He says it's going to grow so tall and it's going to span so far that it's going to provide shelter and shade for the birds of the air to come and nest in its branches. Listen, when Jesus says... That the birds of the air will come and nest in the branches of this seed that's being planted. What he's referring to are the peoples of the nations. See, in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, the Old Testament says in Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of a cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. Now listen, I know Ezekiel, speaking of a cedar tree, he says, I'm going to take a small cutting off of the uppermost twig of a cedar tree, Right? And he says, I'm going to plant it. I'm going to, I'm going to graft it. I'm going to plant it down into the dirt. And it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's going to provide nests for the birds of the air. The same image Jesus uses here about the parable of the mustard seed. I know Ezekiel's talking about a cedar, and uh, uh, Jesus is talking about a mustard seed, but the point's the same. That which starts very, very small expands and becomes massive. And inclusive. He says it'll become like a noble cedar for the birds to to dwell in. Jesus says it'll become the largest of the garden plants where the birds can nest in. All throughout the Old Testament, the birds of the air oftentimes are a reference to the nations of the earth. And so, what Jesus says will happen, what the kingdom looks like, it looks like this incredibly inclusive and expansive. Rule and reign on the earth. And I want you to know something. It's not only what Jesus said here, but this is what human history and church history has shown. Let me, let, me give you, let, me, let me break this down for you a little bit. Listen. See, the kingdom of God breaks into human history. The rule and reign of God, it breaks into human history at the birth of Jesus Christ. This baby born in a manger. Okay, Seemingly small and insignificant once again who would grow in wisdom and stature and knowledge before God and man. He would end up teaching with authority and ministering with mercy. He would live a life that was sinless. He'd be betrayed, handed over to the Roman government. He'd be crucified. He'd spend three days in a tomb before being raised from the grave to send His followers to the end of the earth prior to His ascension into heaven. Only to return as he is seen leaving one day, we will be able to say and see the fulfillment of Revelation 11:15, where it says, the kingdom of, the, of this world has become the kingdom of our, my, our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So it breaks into humanity through Jesus, life, death, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension and return. But listen, until then, the story goes on because Jesus selects a collection of men, listen, without pedigree or credentials, They were not the pick of the litter. Men who were unimpressive, insignificant, inconsequential, and in fact, ignorable in their day. They were compelled with the good news of Jesus and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they proceeded to turn the world upside down. Listen, imagine what it would have been like to be in the room in Antioch in Acts chapter 13 when the believers were worshiping and the Holy Spirit tapped on their shoulder and signaled out Saul and Barnabas to be sent out. Think about that for a moment. What it would have been like to have been in that room and then to see history unfold. That they would be sent out. Do you think they would ever have imagined in their wildest dreams the kind of ripple effect that this act of obedience to the Holy Spirit would have had on their generation in places like Rome, in places like Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, on the islands of Cyprus and Crete? The most diverse places in the ancient world, these big metropolitan areas where people of the nations were and churches were being planted. Do you think they would have ever imagined the kind of impact that act of obedience would have had on the generation after generation in places like South Africa or northern Russia, from the Midwestern parts of the U.S. to the Middle East, as the gospel continues to advance and go forth? They would plant churches in Jerusalem. They would plant churches in Antioch, in Rome, in Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, on the islands, into Egypt, Africa, India. The book of Acts traces the global expansion as that mustard seed grows and its branches sprout and nests are developed in all of these places, among all of these peoples. And it ends in the book of Acts with Paul in prison in Rome, awaiting trial, with a desire to go westward towards Spain, the ends of the earth in his day, to take the gospel to places where it not has not yet been. See, Jesus has a mustard seed. And it would grow to the largest of the garden plants with nests for all the peoples of the nations to find refuge, to seek shelter. In the last 2,000 years of history, listen, it tells the story of branches born of a seed. To use another one of Jesus' parables that was laid into the ground. And then it was raised up, sprung up to life, and it spread and stretched to the four corners of the world providing a home for all kinds of people who come from all kinds of places. See, God's kingdom is inclusive. It is not limited to one nationality. By the way, I know we're up in we're in an election year. I like to say this every once in a while. We got an election cycle coming up. There's there are caucuses and primaries, and there are people vying for their position on platforms to become the next president of the United States. But listen, I just want to say something this morning. That God's kingdom, God's kingdom, includes peoples of all nations from all places, because God does not have a covenant relationship with any one particular nation, not ours. He has a covenant relationship with His church, His church, not America. We'll let that settle however you would like it to settle. But listen, so as we think about this kingdom being inclusive and being expansive, what do we do with that? Well, right now, you and I, as we're part of this kingdom, if you're a Christian, we are to live as an ambassador of this kingdom. As an ambassador of this kingdom. See, right now, churches are like embassies of the kingdom of God and Christians are like ambassadors of the kingdom of God. Embassies are the outposts of one nation on the soil of another nation. And ambassadors are representatives of one ruler to other rulers or to other kings or presidents or prime ministers. And listen, as an ambassador, to live as an ambassador. In fact, we're called that in the book of Second Corinthians chapter 5, where in verses 19 and 20, Paul writes, in, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Paul says you're an ambassador of Jesus as you're appealing to the world to be reconciled with the one who made them. To, be, to have the relationship between them and God restored through Jesus Christ as you bring the gospel to peoples and places participating in the global expansion and the local expansion of God's rule, his righteous and redemptive rule. Now, there's a couple of ways that we can do this. One is by praying, it's by praying. You know, great works of God throughout human history oftentimes have been predicated by prayer. God responding to the petitions and pleas of His people. Let me ask you a question. When you think about your prayer life, is it only filled with requests for personal peace, requests for personal prosperity, requests for favor in the eyes of others, or is it marked by prayers for the global expansion of God's kingdom? In other words, that Jesus would be known and loved and worshipped in places where He's not yet known, loved, and worshipped. Do you pray that there would be new nests that would be constructed? There would be new people groups who have never heard of Christ that would be grafted into the body of Christ. What fills your prayer life? It's not wrong to pray for personal needs and requests, but listen, I want to tell you something. It's a little lopsided if that's all your prayer life is about. It's about me and my finances and the new home that I want. Or about the behavior of my children, okay? I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. But what I'm saying is that they're completely lopsided and impl- it's like a self-centered implosion that takes place as we cave in on ourselves. That's all our prayer life is about. Do you pray for the expansion of God's kingdom among other people and places, for seeds to be planted, saplings to be watered, branches to grow where there are now none? Does that fill your prayer life as well? Another way to do this is by actually planting seeds. Planting seeds. Planting seeds. See, planting gospel seeds in the lives of people by sharing your faith, giving a testimony of what God's done in your life, bringing them back to the good news of Jesus. So you can plant gospel seeds, but also plant gospel witnesses. Plant gospel witnesses. It's one of the reasons we're here in a fast growing suburban context. We believe God led us here four years ago to plant a gospel witness in the heart of this city as it grows and emerges. To love and serve the city and point them to Christ. And listen, being a part of planting something is usually a little different than being a part of maintaining something. You recognize that, right? Right? Being a part of planting something looks different than just maintaining something that's already been planted and established 20 years ago. You know, one of the great things that I rejoice in is that we have new deacon roles being filled. See, early on in our ministry here, people would, would visit and they'd be like, well, do you have this and this and this? They're like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> they'd be like, well, we're looking for this, this, and this. And they would go wherever this, this, and this was. Right? Because they were looking for well-developed and fine programs. But when there's saplings that are just coming out of the ground, they can't bear the weight of all that. Or they get crushed under it. But we've begun to emerge into a season of life where that, the, the trunk, so to speak, has begun to broaden. Its base has begun to thicken. We're able to support more opportunities for ministry than we ever have before. Right? But we're still... We're still, I would say we're still, we're on the, on, on the just outside the threshold of that planting season. As we continue to develop and, and become what God would desire us to be here in the life of this community. That we might provide branches and nests for all kinds of people, with all kinds of backgrounds. Okay? God's kingdom is inclusive second thing that we learn from these parables is this. Not only is it inclusive, but it's invasive. It is invasive. Look at what Jesus says in verses 26 to 29. Jesus likens the coming of his kingdom to another seed, scattering of seed on a ground. He says the kingdom of God is a man should go out and scatter seed on the ground. And then he goes to bed. (laughs) then he wakes up the next day, and then he goes to bed.